by Oscar Wilde called The Picture of Dorian Gray. A young man named Dorian Gray discovers that his immoral choices lead a stain on his youthful beauty, which was important to him. He therefore makes a deal with the devil to have all the stains from his sins to be transferred to this picture that he had painted of himself which he locked in a room in his mansion. And we have a picture of the original painting there. You can see the time period of this novel. As the years go by and the sins mount, including the sin of murder, he maintains his youthful beauty and vigor, but the picture of him becomes more and more hideous, reflecting each rebellion against God until it eventually looked like that, a horror. Finally, in an act of hatred against himself, he takes a knife and he stabs the picture because he doesn't want anyone to see the evil of his soul. His servants hear a cry from the locked room he's in and they call the police who have to burst down the door to get into the room. And there they find a hideously deformed old man with a knife in his chest and a picture on the wall of their master as the youth, unblemished. Such is the nature of the human condition. We hide our sins, thinking that we can just ignore them, thinking that they really don't matter in the grand scheme of things. But our sins eventually catch up with us. And at some point in our lives, we come to realize that we desperately need saving. Such was the case in the southern kingdom of Judah. In their last 60 years, God sent prophet after prophet to warn them of the stain on their souls. This included the prophet Jeremiah. In the first 29 chapters of Jeremiah, he describes the impending judgment of God against his people. Because they over and over again, century after century, violated their covenant with Yahweh. Jeremiah's message was so awful that he was called the weeping prophet because he wept at the impending doom of his people. But in chapters 30 and 31, a change of tone occurs. And that's why these chapters are often called the book of consolation or the book of comfort within the prophecies of Jeremiah. In the midst of their mourning, in the midst of their warning of the wrath to come, Yahweh gives a glimmer of hope, a refuge amidst the storm. At first, it's just a whisper. But with each passing paragraph, it becomes stronger and stronger until it becomes a grand hymn of Israel's deliverance. The timing of our text today and next week is probably before the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. 
It's probably done while the city is under siege for the last time by the Babylonians. Thus, some from Jerusalem have already been exiled, like Daniel and his friends. That happened in 597 BC when Jehoiachin, the second last king of Judah, was exiled. Now, some of the prophecies in Jeremiah 30 and 31 came to pass during the exile. And some came during the past during the post-exilic periods, meaning between the Old and the New Testament. But some did not come to fulfillment. And thus, there was a future element to this prophecy. Today's text, chapter 30, is a prophecy that was originally foretold in Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 10, and Leviticus 26. There Yahweh promised Israel that if they sin and break their covenant and are exiled to a foreign land, and there they realize their sins, repent, and return to Yahweh, and obey his voice and all that he commanded them, he would have mercy on them, and he would restore them to their land and to full shalom. Now, shalom is often translated as peace, and shalom, shalom means perfect peace. But in Hebrew thought, this is much more of a a total life flourishing under Yahweh. Our text this morning has five sections, a prologue, three main sections, and a postscript. There are two main themes in our text this morning, judgment against sin, and then restoration by Yahweh. Now, both of these themes are expressed in the prologue, the first main section, and in the postscript. In the second main section, sin and judgment will be highlighted. And then in the third section, restoration will be highlighted. Like Dorian Gray's portrait, our text describes vividly the marred soul of Judah. But it also describes Yahweh's grand solution to their predicament. The purpose of today's text is to get the people ready for the promise of the new covenant which we will explore next week when we look at Jeremiah 31. Would you pray with me? Father God, we pray this morning that you would help us to see clearly our condition before you. Help us to recognize the horror of our sin, the degradation of our souls, and the brokenness of our lives and our rebellion against you. In your Holy Spirit's power, help us to see the hope of salvation that we have with the one that you promised to send to save us from our sins, Jesus Christ. May we today grab hold of that offer and never let go. Oh Lord, save us, I pray. Amen. This morning we have 24 verses to work our way through, and as I mentioned, We will read our text in five sections, a prologue, then three main points, and then a postscript. Now, our first section this morning is the prologue, verses 1 through 7, where we, with the nation of Judah, will see our status before God and will see our only hope of restoration. Follow along as I read now verses 1 through 7, and realize I will be using, like I have in the past, the Hebrew personal name for God that he chose for himself, Yahweh, where your text may have the Lord, L-O-R-D in all caps. 
Verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel. Write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you. For behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah, says Yahweh. And I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. These are the words that Yahweh spoke concerning Israel and Judah. Thus says Yahweh, We have heard a cry of panic, of terror, and no shalom. Ask now, and see, can a man bear a child? Why then do I see every man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor? Why has every face turned pale? Alas, that day is so great there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob. Yet he shall be saved out of it. In this section, Jeremiah tells us that Yahweh has spoken to him and told him to write down what he hears and then share it to his audience, the full nation of Israel, both the northern and the southern kingdom. But at this time, the northern kingdom has already been exiled by the nation of Assyria to various Assyrian provinces. And Assyria was conquered by Babylon. And Babylon now rules the southern kingdom as a vassal state. This introduction is a, a prologue of both elements of our passage this morning. Judgment against Israel for her sins, but also hope for the future. God tells Jeremiah that a day is coming when he will restore his people, the Israelites, to their land after they have been exiled to Babylon. They will be restored to a rebuilt Jerusalem and to Shalom. Shalom can only come from a right relationship with Yahweh. Now, there's no specificity of the timing here, and historically, the southern kingdom was restored after the exile in the days of Nehemiah and the days of Ezra the priest. But this never included the exiles of the northern kingdom. So there must be a future element to this promise where all of Israel will one day be restored and be reunited as a nation. But before restoration can occur, Israel is going to pay for their sins with exile and destruction. There will be starvation. There will be deprivation. Verse 6 talks about a man holding his belly and asks, can a man have labor? And You may think of our current cultural climate. But that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about when you are under siege and people start to starve, the belly produces extra fluid called ascites, and your belly swells. It causes anguish and pain. They have hunger. And if they don't listen like a woman in labor, their destruction cannot be postponed. The men have lost their courage. Sin has a cost. Sin has a cost. This is a warning to Jerusalem to repent while they still can. There's fear in these verses, fear of Babylon, fear of enslavement, fear of suffering and separation from loved ones, as well as the ultimate fear, their loss of identity as the people of Yahweh. 
This is the opposite of shalom. Even near the end, while Zedekiah, the last king of Judah, reigned, God gave them a chance to repent and to save Jerusalem from destruction and to keep Zedekiah and his kids from being killed, as seen in Jeremiah 38, verses 17 to 23. But they instead turned to neighboring countries for their help, to Edom, Moab, Amnon, Tyre, and Sidon, as seen in Jeremiah 27, verses 1 through 7. That was a fatal mistake. They needed to remember their covenant with Yahweh and repent. So what will happen? What will God do? Well, Yahweh answers in verse 7 with a whisper of salvation in this section. But the answer, as I said, gets stronger and more direct with each of the following paragraphs. So let's continue with our first main point, verses 8 through 11. Verse 8. And it shall come to pass in that day, declares Yahweh of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off your neck, and I will burst your bonds, and foreigners shall no more make a servant of him, but they shall serve Yahweh their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. And fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares Yahweh, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from far away and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease, and none shall make him afraid, for I am with you to save you, declares Yahweh. I will make a full end of all the nations among whom I scattered you, but of you I will not make a full end. I will discipline you in just measure, and I will by no means leave you unpunished. In this section, Yahweh gives hope. In spite of Israel's failing, Yahweh will be faithful. He will save his people from their bondage. Sin will be paid for and just discipline will be meted out. And both of these first two sections point vividly to the fact that the people cannot save themselves. But nonetheless, salvation will come through Yahweh. Jeremiah has already told them that they will take on Babylon's yoke of oppression in Jeremiah 27 and 28. After 70 years of captivity, Yahweh will break their bonds and also serve, they will um, come out of their uh, enslavement and once again serve Yahweh. But they'll also serve David, their king. But wait a second. David is long dead. So what's this text referring to? Well, it's referring to the Davidic promise in um, 2 Samuel 7, where someone from David's lineage will rule. But the history of the return from the exile and the post-exilic narratives never describe another king of Israel. And the leaders of the Maccabean revolt in the 2nd century were from the tribe of Levi, not from the tribe of Judah which was David's lineage. Thus, this prophecy has a future element to it. Salvation and shalom come from Yahweh's presence with his people, which Isaiah tells us is Emmanuel. Matthew and Luke tell us that this promise is fulfilled 
in Jesus Christ, who traces his lineage from David. Jesus Christ, the very Son of God himself, will save the nation of Israel eternally from their bondage of sin. You know, we too carry around a yoke of bondage, a yoke of sin. We are a slave to our sinful nature. We can only be saved by God. Let's continue on now with the second main point and discover truly what is our condition before God. This will be verses 12 through 15. For thus says Yahweh, Your hurt is incurable. Your wound is grievous. There is none to uphold your cause. No medicine for your wound, no healing for you. All your lovers have forgotten you. They they care nothing for you. For I have dealt you the blow of an enemy, the punishment of a merciless foe, because your guilt is great, because your sins are flagrant. Why do you cry out over your hurt? Your pain is incurable. Because your guilt is great, because your sins are flagrant, I have done these things to you. In this section, Yahweh gives a lament for his people, for his own children. He describes in vivid detail their status using two distinct metaphors, a medical metaphor and a legal metaphor. Medically, they're broken beyond repair. They're destined for death. Jeremiah's bedside manner here is direct. It's in your face. It's no dancing around the truth, no blowing smoke. He's direct and to the point. As a physician, I like that. Tell the truth. Legally, in God's court, they've been found guilty with no one to defend them. Friends have become foes. Kin have become enemies, and God himself has now dealt the judgment death blow because Israel's sins were so great, because Israel's sins are what the Old Testament called high-handed sins. What does that mean? It means sins by choice of will in utter contempt and rebellion toward their covenant with Yahweh. Their sins have caught up with them, and punishment by consequences can no longer be delayed by God's mercy. His holiness and his justice will now prevail. There's no point in crying out. There is no atonement for them underneath the old covenant. So a new way is needed if this relationship is going to survive, and we will explore that new way next week when we look at Jeremiah 31. You know, as a surgeon, I have seen wounds that are too severe to be repaired. Body parts that were too infected to survive. Limbs too diseased with gangrene to be salvaged. And all that can be done is to cut out the diseased tissue to do what we call debridement, to amputate the destroyed limb. Healers take no pleasure in this act. It is done with sadness for the loss and for the knowledge of the disability that will follow. Sin corrupts the mind with evil thoughts. 
Sin corrupts the body with wicked deeds. It corrupts our souls and it breaks our bond with our Creator. We need a physician who can heal our minds and our bodies, who can rescue our souls from death. Our souls are rotting. We're in the throes of death. We're gasping for a Savior. Our sins are many. Our guilt is great. Who can save us? Only God. Only God. May he have mercy on our souls. Follow along now as I read God's solution to our dire condition, verses 16 through 22. Therefore, all who devour you shall be devoured. And all your foes, every one of them, shall go into captivity. Those who plunder you shall be plundered. And all who pray on you, I will make a prey, for I will restore health to you. And your wounds I will heal, declares Yahweh. Because they have called you an outcast. It is Zion for no, whom no one cares. Thus says Yahweh, Behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob and have compassion on his dwellings. The city shall be rebuilt on its mound and the palace shall stand where it used to be. Out of them shall come songs of thanksgiving and the voices of those who celebrate. I will multiply them and they shall not be few. I will make them honored and they shall not be small. Their children shall be as they were of old and their congregation shall be established before me and I will punish all who oppress them. Their prince shall be one of themselves. Their ruler shall come out of their midst. I will make him draw near, and he shall approach me. For who would dare of himself to approach me, declares Yahweh. And you shall be my people, and I will be your God. In this section, Yahweh answers each of the problems identified in the last section. God promises a future leader, a Messiah, or an anointed one, meaning one chosen by God himself, who will expose every sin, he will tear down every tyrant, and he'll bring every criminal to justice. Friends who are now foes will receive their just due for unfaithfulness. Incurable wounds and hurts will now be miraculously healed. Amazing. How will this happen? Well, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Yahweh's blows of judgment now turn to balms of healing. Not because of anything Israel brings to the table, but because of the character of Yahweh. The people will return to the promised land, Jerusalem will be rebuilt, and the people will celebrate once again with feasting and songs and rejoicing. Shalom, shalom. Perfect peace. 
They will grow in numbers, and out of that number, a ruler will come from among them. This leader will be a mediator. He will have special access to God, and he will have a deep and abiding relationship with Yahweh. This person will combine the priestly role with the role of the king. This is something new. In the past, if you wanted to approach God in the holies of holies, it could only be done once a year on the Day of Atonement and then only by the high priest, not by the king. That type of closeness died with Moses. But now one greater than Moses will come to rule and to be in relationship with Yahweh for the people as originally promised in Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 18. Listen to this text as I read it. This is Moses speaking to the people. Yahweh your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of Yahweh your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Oh, let me not hear again the voice of Yahweh, my God, or, or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And Yahweh said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. God once again will claim the Israelites as his own family. But just as importantly, the people will once again claim God as their God. This implies a perfected relationship. But how is that going to occur? The Israelites have proven over and over again, century after century, that they are totally incapable of following God's law. Well, what's the answer? The Apostle Peter in the New Testament gives us the answer in Acts chapter 3, verses 12 through 17, that Jesus is the fulfillment of this Mosaic prophecy. And he told the people of Jerusalem what they must do to be saved. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Doing what Peter proclaimed is how we can be the people of God and how we can be restored to relationship with him. Now, in summary, follow along as I read Jeremiah's postscript from verses 23 and 24. It's a little bit different tone. Behold the storm of Yahweh. Wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of Yahweh will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intentions of his mind. In the latter days, you will understand this. This final section acts as a, a postscript, a summary of what has already been said, but it's also a reference to a future day of the Lord, something mentioned over and over again in the major and the minor prophets. It'll be a day 
when God judges all the nations, including the nation of Israel, a day in the future, a day to be feared. But he also will bring about his will with return to a covenantal relationship. The apostles in the New Testament, because of what Jesus told them, felt that the latter-day prophecies were fulfilled with the coming of Christ. But some prophecies, like those in Daniel and other minor and major prophets, would only be fulfilled with the coming of Christ for a second time. Both of those events lay our foundation for hope. Trials can be endured if you know there's an end coming. Tough times and persecution can be endured if you know a better day is coming. The God of Israel, the God we worship, is both a God of judgment and a God of restoration. For Israel, judgment was the destruction of Jerusalem and exile to Babylon. And restoration was returned from exiles in the days of the Persian king Cyrus the Great. Although the returning exiles had leaders, they had no king. They had no prince until the prince of peace and the king of kings, Jesus Christ, came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. In Jesus Christ, God has bound himself to his people, those he calls the family of God, those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ. For while there was a temporal deliverance of the Israelites to their land, 450 years later, there was an eternal deliverance or salvation offered to all people through Jesus Christ. I have a question for you. Have you received that eternal offer of salvation? If we had a picture of your soul that we put up on the screen right now, what will we see? Is it a hideous mess? A diseased and dying soul marred by sin and rebellion against God? Or has your soul been restored to purity by being washed in the blood of Jesus Christ? If you're not sure, don't wait till next week when we learn the answer of what God has done offering this new covenant to bring you back into a right relationship with him, to find shalom eternally. The prophecies of Jeremiah pointed to the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who lived a life like us, but lived it in perfect alignment with the Father's will. He came to take our punishment for our sins. He died on the cross so our penalty could be paid in full by his shed blood. God raised him up from the dead and has given him all authority on heaven and on earth. Please, please put your trust in Jesus Christ today so that you can be restored to a right relationship with your creator, Yahweh. Ask him today to be your Lord and Savior, and the stains on your soul can be removed forever. There's only one cure for iniquity, only one remedy for guilt, 
Only one atonement for sin, and that is the shed blood of Jesus Christ with his sacrificial death on the cross. Claim it today. For those of you who have already put your faith in Jesus, please realize how sin can continue to corrupt our relationship with Yahweh. How it grieves and disrupts the power of Christ, Holy Spirit, who lives in us. Let's keep our account short by confessing our sins daily, by confessing our sins hourly, perhaps even moment by moment. And remember, as John stated in 1 John 1.9, that as we confess our sins, Christ is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Your soul's portrait can be perfected in Christ. Let's pray. Almighty Father, forgive us for being like Israel and rebelling against you and breaking our relationship with you. Thank you for your holiness and your perfect justice. <laughs> Thank you even more for your mercy and love. Thank you for doing what we could not do ourselves, saving us from our sins. Oh, Jesus, how we thank you for being our Savior and taking our punishment, for restoring our souls back to health through your atoning blood as we put our faith in you. Lead us now each day in the power of your Holy Spirit into a restored relationship with your Father. Yahweh. Amen.